0: there's sometimes you want to access something that is not from thinking that is from a flow state that you can kind of only achieve when you're actually sort of playing the musical instrument yourself, if you will. And so I found Daniel and just felt like it was such a great collaboration because he was someone who, got that and could we could have all the hot debates that uh, that produce the best kind of movie that when you're working with an editor at the same time we could both like do that more subconscious work of getting to just like be on the machine ourselves
1: hello and welcome to cut to reveal a podcast where we discuss the art of editing and all the hurdles that come with that career path my name is Piotr and today I'm without my other host, Ricky. Ricky is in the US. He's visiting his family, his friends. Uh, so I'm recording this intro myself. That's one of them, you know, many good things about doing the podcast together. You can, you can share some of the responsibilities. And today we have for you a very interesting conversation that we both conducted with Sarah Dina Smith, a director and Daniel Gerber, an editor of a film that premiered this year on Tribeca Film Festival, The Drop. And let me just read you a synopsis. This is a fun comedy. So, in this clever cringe comedy, a seemingly happy married couple confronts a test of their marriage when one of them drops a baby while at a destination wedding at a tropical island. (laughs) So... Yeah, it's a fun film. I've seen it. I've seen a screener. But yeah, let's let's roll the tape. You'll love what they have to say about the film, about their approach to filmmaking, editing the project together, uh, about um, how they both collaborated. Uh, you know what they value in each other and things like that. Like th- there are some golden nuggets in that conversation. So yeah, let's get to it. Roll the tape. <laughs> You both edited, directed, produced, right? So, uh, if you can talk about your experience so far, and h- how did you know that you want to focus on directing in your case, Sarah, and on on editing you know, in your case, Daniel?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, I guess actually, it's it's cool that both of you have backgrounds in in doing some documentary work uh, because that's that's where I started out. Uh, I basically right after finishing up with college had nothing to do. And so I started out by working as an editor for a former teacher of mine named uh, Pacho Velez. And so we worked together for a number of years on a project called The Reagan Show, um, which was an all archival documentary with like thousands of hours of footage. So it was a huge task and honestly, one of the best ways of learning how to edit because I was just so inundated with footage and had to be totally familiar with all of it. And that was really, I think, one of the first times that I truly fell in love with editing, just having to craft the story from this really unshaped mass footage. And uh, yeah, so I guess I've sort of, I've never liked the idea of being pigeonholed or pinned down. So I don't really think of myself exclusively as an editor, even though that's mostly what I do. And I also don't only stick with documentary or with fiction. I like sort of hopping the fence, trying different things, wearing different hats, because I find that all of those things can really help enrich um, every Mm -hmm. other part of my practice. So I've done... I guess I'm currently working on my third narrative feature and I've cut two feature docs and I'm moving on to another one after this. So. Oh, fantastic. Yeah,
0: I didn't know I wanted to do any of this until I think a little bit later than most people. It really wasn't until after college that um, I started to get into filmmaking and it really started through like weird experimental video art that no one shall ever see. But I learned to edit because, you know, I just never had any money. So I was always just doing everything, you know, myself. And just like, Mm -hmm. um, I remember my first, I learned to edit on like a cracked copy of like Final Cut 2 or something like that, you know? And I've always just been kind of, self-taught and making mistakes and doing things the hard way until someone finally comes around just is like, you know, there's a quickie that just does what, you know, what took you 10 minutes so you could do in two seconds. And then you're like, ah, um, no, <laughs> that's like the story of my learning to edit essentially. Um, and yeah, I um, always edited my own movies again, just out of necessity, but it also just ended up becoming a really pivotal part of, my fil- like I, it's how I think as a filmmaker now because I started yeah. that way. It's very hard to uh, make a living in indie film. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that <laughs> before. Um, yes. So you know, it, it, it's only recently that I've been able to like have a paid career doing this. But before that for, for most of my time I was um, we had a design studio um, to, to pay the bills, but also I was working as a freelance editor in Mm -hmm. for like commercials or industrials or all kinds of things. And so um, I was doing a lot of editing all the time and it it became for me, it's almost more comfortable than writing. I mean, I'm a writer as well, but it's like editing feels like writing Um, Mm -hmm. and, and what was I realized why I wanted to edit this movie with Daniel and get back to being an editor again too was the, the previous movie um, was a studio movie um, where literally I wasn't allowed to touch the keys on a Union film, you mm-hmm. know? Um, mm-hmm. And it was like, and I had edited all my other films and it, it's, it's, it's hard for me because I, um, I love working with other editors. I actually really like that experience of having that dialogue. But there's sometimes you want to access something that is not from thinking, that is from a flow state that you can mm-hmm. kind of only achieve when you're actually sort of playing the musical instrument yourself, if yeah. you will. And yeah. so I found Daniel and just felt like it was such a great collaboration because he was someone who got that and could we could have all the you know really um, hot debates that uh, that produce the best kind of movie. That when you're working with an editor at the same time, we could both like do that more. Um, subconscious work of getting to just like be on the machine ourselves um Mm -hmm. and so it it, yeah became Mm -hmm. a really great best of both worlds scenario
1: amazing uh we'll get to the workflow in a second but uh just just give us a little bit more context about the drop how did the project you know came to be
0: so the drop (laughs) the drop came about it's funny because it's like i I never thought it's my first comedy. And honestly, I never thought I'd be making a comedy. It was sort of like this, um, a project. I felt like I was like cheating on my more serious self by making, um, (laughs) like we wrote it, my writing partner on this, um, he and I wrote it pandemic style. Like we were only ever on zoom together and it was like Mm -hmm. supposed to be this little self contained, you know, pandemic movie that we shot, um, you know, in a sort of COVID bubble. Um, but, um, it came about because, um, my husband and I, we were like, are we going to procreate or not? we have been, we have been together 17 years and it was like, we really need to sort of make a decision. And I was <laughs> much more ambivalent than he was. And, um, writing this movie in a way was a way for me to like exercise a lot of my fears about parenting. Um, mm-hmm. because he, he once said to me, um, we were talking. I was talking about this movie. I absolutely adore um, Force Majeure, and I was like, "Oh, what would be Force Majeure if you haven't seen it? I don't think this is a spoiler. It's like this comedy that comes out of the fact that this man violates a sort of primal tenet of manhood. You know, to protect mm-hmm. your family at all costs in mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. instant." And it's like the fallout in his marriage of what happens from that. And I had asked my husband, I was like, "Oh, what would be the female equivalent? Like, what would a woman have to do to violate that sort of primal womanhood?" Um, and he was like, "I don't know. You could drop a baby." And I was like, <laughs> "And I was like, wait a second. What if it? What if it was an accident?" And he was like, "I don't know. I guess I would just wonder if I married a dud." <laughs> <It's> like so, <laughs> and he's like he's the most like evolved like non-gendered non-misogynistic artist guy like i was so uh-huh. surprised to hear that come out of his mouth but it, it to me it made me laugh because it must be getting at something like deep in his bones and like in our animal mm-hmm. selves sort of something true and um so yeah anyway so the idea was sort of born of that and and literally i was like you know are we going to make a baby or not as we were writing it. And then I ended up getting pregnant and then shooting it eight months pregnant. Um, So like the whole thing was this like weirdly parallel exercise and becoming parents. And (laughs) and my husband is the DP. So he was like, you know, there (laughs) for all of it. Um,
1: Multiverse! <laughs> wow. Yeah.
0: Yes. And then I and then I gave birth and then I gave birth and then and I um as I was giving birth, Daniel was putting together his first assembly, and then um and he was so uh, amazingly patient because we weren't sure like when am I going to be able to come back and work or not, you know? Like mm-hmm. um he was so flexible, but then like after like three weeks, like I love being a mom. It's great. It's also super fucking boring. And um <laughs> like after like three weeks of giving birth, I was already. For like, I just need to like. I I went back and started like sneaking into the office to edit again because I just found like I'm a better I'm a better more present parent if I can mm-hmm. scratch that creative itch and and do something else too. Uh,
1: I can relate <laughs> definitely. Uh, I have two kids anyway. Uh, Daniel, so can you talk about about workflow and how you worked together? Because I get a sense that that you edited the feature together to some extent. So how did it work?
2: Yeah, so it was very much a pandemic style workflow. And we had the pandemic, uh, the fact that Sarah and I live on opposite coasts, because she's in Mm -hmm. LA, and I'm in New York.
1: Mm -hmm. And
2: then of course, the baby in the middle of all of that. So we were only together for two relatively brief periods during the edit. We had the time that we were both on set. So basically everybody was off in the, in the jungle hauling gear around and sweating. And I was like in an air conditioned office reviewing footage all day, every day and having little box lunches delivered to me. Um, and then we would, Sarah and I would kind of check in at the end of every day when she would get back from shooting. So she would be exhausted and I would be like, please, I haven't seen another human all day. Tell me what you're thinking. I come
0: in, I'm like so super fat and pregnant and sweaty. I'm just like caked in sweat. From like being in the jungle all day. And then I come into his like air conditioned room and it was like, oh, and yeah, got <laughs> to have these, these nice check-ins. And he's,
2: and he's like, tell me all the things. What's it like out there? <laughs> yeah. Occasionally I got out and I got to meet people.
0: We lost our scripty, our script supervisor halfway through. So then I started making oh, no. Daniel come to set um, <laughs> and, and be like a scripty for me too. So then he had to get hot and sweaty.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. Wearing a different for for a day or two. <laughs> Um, Yeah. And then we also had a period of working together out of the Duplass Brothers Productions offices in LA for a few weeks, Mm -hmm. um, which was sort of when we were at the late rough cut stage and we were like really trying to figure out some core story issues. And that was great. I mean, I think both of us love being in the room together and love just the, the creative push and pull and the ability to just grab your collaborator and say, hey, check out this sequence. How do you feel about this? Yeah. That's, I think, way better than working remotely. But by necessity, we spent most of our time working remotely. And so that was enabled by a few different things. Um, I would say most importantly, um, the Premiere Productions feature was really central to our workflow. So we had mirrored Drives in New York and LA. Mm-hmm. And then our post supervisor, who's fantastic, Alex Regulato, she also has a mirrored drive. And so we set up a production while uh, while we were on set. And then basically that meant that Sarah and I, even if we weren't working the same hours across the country, um, we could just be sending each other projects at the end of every day or in the middle of every day and just kind of seeing uh, what the other was working on. Um, and that was also really helpful because we had scheduled a decent amount of time for a maternity leave. And then I was surprised that Sarah was really itching to get back into the edit before I was <laughs> supposed to come back. So I actually managed uh-huh. to squeeze in like a tiny short in the middle of the edit of this film.
1: Wow, um, okay. And so while
2: I was working on that, Sarah was kind of working on her first like revision to my assembly um, hmm. and sending me things while I was on a different project. So productions was great for that. I really To me, that's the thing that has really made um, Premiere just an incredibly reliable tool.
0: It was so much more seamless to use than um, on the previous film. Um, We also had this weird remote setup because of the pandemic. I can't remember Mm. the name of it even anymore, but it was so buggy and so much more expensive. We were editing on Avid, and it drove Mm. us crazy every day um, because actually the footage was on these servers in New York, um, um, and it was just like there was, it was, the footage was always out of sync sound wise, but in a different way every time, which is like maddening. Mm. So you can't even like, you know, get used to the way it's out of sync. It was like surprise sync every time. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, um, and so many crashes. And this was like, I would say Daniel, like pretty seamless. I mean, there were maybe a small handful of times there was something we had to look at, but like on a day-to-day basis, productions was pretty great.
1: Were you sending like a Premiere Pro project file directly to Sarah, or was it like synchronized automatically between both of your machines?
2: Well, usually what we would do is we would just upload to um, to Dropbox. We weren't we weren't paying for like a separate cloud storage mm-hmm. system or yeah. something that was mm-hmm. continuously updating. We just, um, especially because when we were in Mexico on on the shoot, we didn't have very reliable internet, so we didn't want to store the entire production on the cloud and then be forced mm-hmm. to be connected to the cloud at all times to get our updates. Um, yeah. So it was really that all of, the, all of the files were stored locally, but then um, we would sort of text each other or something when there was an update and then the other one would just pull it down from Dropbox. So that okay. worked okay. very well for our needs on this project. And, you know, it's a very small production. So <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, certain things that maybe we would have decided to do differently if it had been a much larger team But it was great for what we needed.
0: Daniel, you're the most organized person I've ever met. And it is (laughs) such a relief for me who is extremely (laughs) disorganized. I think I drove Daniel maybe a little crazy with my naming conventions because he's much better at naming (laughs) things in a logical way. Um, (laughs) But I I relied on him for sure.
1: That's a good thing to say about editor.
2: I would not call you the most disorganized person. (laughs) There There are very disorganized directors out there. You don't even know. Okay, I was.
0: I, I'm. I'm average. Average and disorganized. <laughs>
3: um, since the film was basically improvised from an outline, how um, can you guys talk about like the challenges that you faced with your selection process and stuff like that?
0: Yeah, um, it was one of the reasons I really wanted to bring Daniel on in particular because he does have a documentary background, and I wanted mm-hmm. to shoot in a way. You know, I feel like documentary editors are quite good at understanding how to build story with non-traditional coverage, um, mm-hmm. and both because of the time constraints and because of the improvisation. I knew we were going to, you know, have non-traditional kind of coverage for this for this movie. Yeah. Uh, improv is almost not the best word for the type of movies I make when they're not mm-hmm. fully scripted, only because it's really not a free for all. It really is quite sort of beat it out, and we know what we need going in. Um, I give my actor's kind of a loose leash at the beginning. And then I'm trying to like sculpt it down with each take. Mm. And even I'd come in at the end of the day to Daniel and I'd be like, look, um, you know, I I let, they were, they were going off on this riff that I didn't want to, you know, get them out of their heads by telling them not to do We're not. We don't need any of that. This is the part I need, you know, like I could also just tell him what to focus on. But I found, I found like the, um, the hardest thing with this project, as opposed to my, because two of my other films were also done this way in a sort of semi-scripted way. Um, mm-hmm. But with this one, it was like, there was way more funny than we had time for. It was really, yeah. I think the hardest thing was just at some point you have, you can't laugh at every take and include every take. You really have to yeah, just start yeah. making choices. And then those, and with the comedy, it's hard to know sometimes when you've watched it a bajillion times, like have we made, you know, have we made right. the right choice and taken the funniest take?
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's that, that <laughs> curse of knowledge type thing where you There's all those takes. I've worked on a documentary where it was like this onslaught of all these funny, funny stories. And you're like, we can only pick two. So which are the ones that we want to pick? Because we can't have this be like a four hour documentary with all the funny stories
2: right and sometimes it's not just what is the what is the single funniest moment but it's like what is the funniest moment that also functions within the story in these other ways because we have to think about things like character development everybody's dramatic arcs and and so sometimes there's something that's very funny uh, but just doesn't fit within that so how do you try to maximize humor while still serving what at its core needs to be a pretty grounded drama
1: yeah,
0: We were really rigorous at the outset. Um, and I think in some ways this is what made the process so enjoyable, Daniel, is like we were really rigorous about we need to get Lex and Manny's story right. And before we do anything else and make sure that that skeleton feels strong um, and then, and then build funny around it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was always really at the core of, of every decision we were making, but I think we managed to work in a decent amount of funny as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, uh, what was your experience, Daniel, with 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 that kind of footage? Like, did it feel like a documentary, or because, like, I'm not sure, but I think it's your first feature narrative, right?
2: Second narrative feature, first
1: uh, improv-heavy uh, narrative
2: <laughs> yeah, feature. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, how did it feel?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting. In some ways, it was like a documentary in that sometimes there was less there was less coverage than than you might have since so so much of the time on set was spent kind of refining the writing and uh, distilling some of these longer improvisations into something that's closer to like a really tightly written scene. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt at times like there, there weren't quite as many options, Um, Mm -hmm. but that was in a lot of ways, a really productive constraint to have. Mm -hmm. And Sarah also just has an incredible instinct for just knowing when she has the scene. So mm-hmm. I was never left in a situation where I truly did not have enough, but there were also plenty of times where I felt like, well, there aren't like infinite angles I could be cutting to at mm-hmm. this moment. Mm-hmm. There aren't like there aren't like five different setups mm-hmm. for this particular moment. And also because of the improv, there are some some takes where we just didn't have a certain beat or would fall in a very different part of the scene. Mm-hmm. And so kind of getting a sense of how each take unfolds as its own kind of version of the scene was, mm-hmm. was a big... Uh, a big part of the editing.
0: We only have three weeks to shoot this thing. So, you know, I, I once, I I mean, I'm trying to edit in my brain as we go, especially with an Mm -hmm. improv movie. And once I know we have it, like we got to move on. So it's true that like, there's really, there's almost like really only one way it will work. (laughs) And it's just (laughs) like, (laughs) you know, finding it and refining it.
1: It's useful to have these editing skills as a a director, right? Because you, you, you can actually like imagine the cut in your head.
0: It is. But then I, it was also, so I was really grateful to have Daniel on set and Daniel is a partner yeah. in this, um, only because, you know, like I was really hot and pregnant. <laughs> so it was also <laughs> like really great to have another editor's brain around, um, just, you know, to make me, it helped my confidence and, and, you know, being able to go back the next day and be like, we got that, right. We got that. And him like, yeah, you got it. Don't worry about it. You know, it was just a nice it, it, it helped my confidence every day, um, <laughs> um, having him affirm what was happening or even being able to say like, you know, yeah, you, you got that, but maybe just take a look at the, this. You might want to, if you have time, you know, think about either a pickup here or, you know, um, track this performance here. Um, it was just really nice to have a bouncing board I, and I don't think I would ever go back to editing alone. Actually. It's mm. so lonely alone. I love, I think this is, I love, you know, this is, feels like the best way. It also is a way for us to get to keep our eyes fresh, you know, like when he yeah. mm-hmm. was doing his pass, I was taking a break. When I was doing my pass, he was taking a break and then we got to come together and really, I think, you know, the best work happened as Daniel said, in person. Um, during that short time we were in person, that's really where the movie got made in its final form.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, that's a great way of working for sure. With, especially with the fresh look fresh eyes on it because i think that's like one of the the crux of being an editor is that you get too close to a film or a project and then you're like this all looks like crap or this isn't working or and then you show it to somebody like this is the greatest ever so you get that or this is the worst ever And then you get that confirmation um and then you can really tell like what is what the work that you're doing and how it's affecting people and the audience
0: yeah. Getting feedback yeah. is so hard and so necessary. It's like mm-hmm. it's it's like you have to do that, like testing it with other people, and yet it can be incredibly confusing because you show ten people and they have ten completely different reactions, and like, it's right. like ah, well, that's not helpful at all. But <laughs> what it's actually forcing you to do is just to look at it fresh through other people's points of view and start to have you know discussions you might not have had before, yeah. had they
3: not mm-hmm. seen Yeah,
1: yeah. The, the way we, we, we like to talk about it is uh, that it's, it's a synergy between a director and the editor, right? And that's what you're aiming for, for that synergy to work.
0: Daniel, you can tell me if I succeeded in this or not, but I tried to, once I was in editor mode, not be director mode, you know, to really just be an editor with you and not be, try to leave, leave everything that happened on set behind so that um, I could just see it just as an editor with you and not be precious about stuff.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if, I guess, consciously, maybe you're wearing your editor hat instead of your director hat. But to me, it just seemed like you were a director uh, with virtually no ego in the process. And I mean, I was so amazed constantly by by how little Sarah seemed to care about what her preconceived notions about the project Hmm. were. I mean, it was just it's very liberating to be able to throw things out if they're not actually working, however great they might've sounded mm-hmm. on the day or however great it might've seemed in, in the assembly before we really understood what the movie was. And um, yeah, if something isn't working, it's, it's gotta go. It's, yeah. it's very to refreshing say, to work with somebody who's not going to fight tooth and nail to keep things. Yeah. Same yeah.
0: with you though, Daniel, like I, I really respected that about you. Like you also were very, um, oh, of all of the editors I've worked with, you're always so willing to just try things which yeah. I really find refreshing rather than having you know, a tooth and nail debate about whether or not the thing should be tried. You always just jumped in and tried it um, even when it was a pain in the ass. And it, it was just like so refreshing and so nice to yeah. be able to work with someone who, who you know, is willing to just take leaps and try things and not be happy, not be ego driven at all.
2: Well thanks. I mean, I often feel like it's a lot easier to just try things than to than to hash them out. Like talking about it takes so long and if you're fast enough at the keys, you can just actually look at that version of it and Mm -hmm. say confidently, No, this doesn't work, or, oh, this works really well. And it doesn't necessarily need all the discussion around it. I think where it really gets difficult is when the two versions seem to have different strengths or maybe are virtually indistinguishable. And then you kind of have to hash it out.
3: It it kind of goes back to Sarah, what you were talking about with the flow state. Like once you start getting into stuff, you don't want to like stop it by like, okay, let's reconvene and talk about it. Let's just cut it and see what actually happens.
0: Well, that was kind of what was nice when we were working at the Duplass office, Daniel and I each had our own little editing room. So Mm -hmm. we could both disappear into like our flow state. And then once we were ready, be able to walk over and be like, hey, come look at this, or hey, come look at this. Um, and so, yeah, it was just a really nice way to be able to experiment and then be able to test that experiment really quickly with each other.
3: Yeah, that's great. I mean, with the, with all the discussions that you were having and stuff, and to go back to the characters in the film, were you guys having discussions about this is the amount of time that these characters are going to have on, or whether they're like a set time or you guys were just kind of like feeling it out, going along with it?
0: I think we were really mostly concerned about that central storyline and then how Mm -hmm. the other characters could be serving that storyline um and then in terms of how we would like i can't remember daniel but i think we would just sort of divide work based on like who was more excited about trying an idea or something so it'd be like oh you go you go do this one you seem to really be on fire about that idea and i'll go try this other idea um or sometimes because um this is where i would just like get to be a um, bratty director. And I'd be like, well, that sounds like a pain. You do that. (laughs) 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 That was a luxury, the luxury of being the director in that moment.
1: That's a good one. (laughs) That is good. (laughs) A question to both of you. For someone who has done like a lot of editing but hasn't done any feature narrative yet, what advice would you give to 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 that person? How how to get that first gig? Because you know, the the thing with the first gig is that you have to have experience with the same thing and if you don't, it's hard to, to get it. So what advice would you give?
0: Daniel, how did you get your first feature gig?
1: Well,
2: I mean I think part of it was luck. I just happened to be old friends with the first feature narrative feature director I worked with. So it is really just so much about a combination of relationship building, and then also just being willing to do things in a way that's scrappier than people who are more established, maybe. Mm -hmm. So in that case, I was also, it was on a film called Cam. um, It's now on Netflix. And that project was pretty low budget. I didn't have an assistant editor for much of the time. And I think that I had heard that um, the production company that was involved in that had a habit of replacing their editors at a, at a certain point in the process. And so I was sort of hanging on with this little asterisk next to my title, like, well, you could also just be replaced by somebody more senior <laughs> once you Jeez. have an assembly of the film. <laughs> uh, and, and I didn't get fired. So, <laughs> so I think that part of it is just being willing to nice. take those kinds of risks and mm-hmm. put yourself out in, in these uh, pretty challenging situations and mm. try to tough it out.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I guess in this
2: case too, it was also, it was a lower budget affair. We didn't have an assistant editor on the project. Mm -hmm. So I was doing a lot of the kind of organizational tasks that an AE would ordinarily take on. Mm -hmm. Um, And also just because of the challenges of working on this schedule with Sarah's pregnancy and um, working on opposite coasts and all of that. I mean, it was a it was an unusual production in a way, which didn't bother me at all. But I suppose for the wrong editor, it could have been a problem.
0: Yeah. I mean, to be crass, as a producer, because I'm also a producer on this project, we sort of knew we couldn't bring on someone who maybe had done 10 features. Like, we needed somebody who still like was had that hunger for wanting to do a a narrative feature. And so Daniel was at the right place in his career for this project just because Mm -hmm. it was like this crazy. We like, okay, job's yours, but you gotta be really flexible and you have to do your own assistant editing. You want it? Yeah. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Um and um so we were quite frankly lucky to get him. Yeah, I mean this was a return to my to my indie roots with the Mm -hmm. with this with this movie, which was lower budget. But um I, I think Daniel the advice he's giving is really good, which is that like, look, you never want to be in a situation where you feel like you're being exploited or taking, being taken advantage of. And -hmm. at the same time, when you don't have that resume built up, you are going to have to make some sacrifices in order for someone to take a risk on you. Cause they are Mm -hmm. taking a risk by, by choosing you for that thing. So it, it, there's a bit of a mutual risk taking that has to happen. Um, And the advice I would give to, This won't apply to everybody for editors who don't, you know, write or direct or produce. But I guess um, from scrappy, you know, filmmaker perspective, from my perspective, I would say, wait a second. I just realized something I was going to say it was my own film and I was going to give you the advice to go make your own film. But I just realized I had edited a feature before. Um, It was terrible. (laughs) Name The name of it. I got you. Oh, my God, you guys. I got paid five hundred dollars. Flat Ooh, to edit feature. this feature. Okay. <laughs> it was awful. It was right before my wedding and I was supposed to get go get married in the desert and like I needed that five hundred dollars and like she didn't even pay me that five hundred dollars. It was like terrible. Um but uh yeah, I think I got the job on <laughs> Craigslist. I don't know if Ooh. Craigslist is international, but it's something that uh, it is in the United States where you yeah, it used to be a place where you yeah. could go get gigs and yeah, you know I yeah. think it's where you find weird sex yeah.
3: <laughs> that's a that's a lesson too. Don't go to Craigslist for jobs if you can help in
1: <laughs> How did you produce your first film? oh
0: um well so my first my first feature the Midnight Swim was a micro budget semi scripted movie that we shot in two weeks and um you know it was really hard fought it took me you know seven years of trying to get another movie financed, um, and, Mm -hmm. and having that fall through over and over again before Mm -hmm. I finally swallowed my pride and said, okay, I'm going to go make a micro budget,
1: Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. POV
0: improv movie. Mm -hmm. Um, and even, you know, it's just really hard to raise money. I mean, I, I, unless some, some people are fortunate to maybe come from connections or have family money or something, but like, if you don't, it's just a, a real hustle Um, Mm -hmm. And you have to really swallow your pride and you feel like a traveling salesman where you're like, also like, it's like you're telling people to give you these micro investments in like a really risky thing. It's like, by the way, investing in movies is not, you know, for the faint of heart. So um, it's, it's. Tough and tricky, and I, I I couldn't have done it if it were not. I wouldn't have had a career if it were not for the handful of people that took a risk mm-hmm. on me and believed in me in the outset. Um, mm-hmm. would relatively, they might seem like small investments, but you know they're big to some people. You know, like five thousand yeah, dollars is like not everyone has that lying around, and um, that's been you know hugely formative in 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 my life. And I think that's that it's it's there's a simple answer to why like that that. Getting through the door um, to get your career going, it always just comes mm-hmm. down to like the gatekeepers and the money and having the you know financial ability to do it and um, I the only advice I would say to people is that um, make sure it's the project that you're really truly honestly passionate about and something mm-hmm. from your own heart because then when you go to talk about it with people they'll be able to feel that from you um, mm-hmm. yep. and connect with it too and it'll be. A little bit easier task for the money, even though it'll still be very awkward.
3: <laughs> Perfect. I, I, I was just recalling the same experience for the documentary that I worked on, and the director that I worked with was like, "I don't like asking people for money." And it was like, "I don't know how we're going to get money for this documentary." Then, <laughs> and so it kind of became very indie guerrilla. Like, okay, well, most of the well, most of it was sweat equity that will never get paid back for, but it was kind of that thing like, okay, we'll just have the money to pay for our equipment, and then hopefully people will want to see this film.
1: <laughs> so, Hey, guys, uh, the question we always ask uh, everyone uh, is, do you have like your favorite filmmaking book or it, it, it doesn't have to be a book. It can be like a documentary you, 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 you've watched or a film that you would like to recommend to everyone uh, listening to this show. So do you have something like that?
0: The One that came to mind for me was Judith Weston's Directing Actors.
1: I just listened to it. I, I finished listening to it like three days ago.
0: She's she's a wonderful teacher and guide for directors here in LA and still works as a consultant on movies sometimes and has written um several books about directing actors and I think it's it's yeah. um yeah, it's I, I haven't really, to be honest, read many books on filmmaking, but that's one that I keep on my shelf.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. I, I've listened to the audiobook and I loved it. Daniel, do you have something?
2: I don't know that I have a good answer for this. <laughs> I like reading. I read a lot of, I, I read a lot of interviews with editors um, and often just learn interesting things from their stories, which is one of the reasons that uh, I was excited to talk with you. But yeah, I, I, I wish there were better books about editing. And I know that many of people have spilled a lot of ink on the subject. But at the end of the day, it's just really hard to distill the kinds of lessons that you can only really learn by yeah. doing it. That's mm-hmm. true
1: that's true is there anything that you would like to add to to the conversation or or you know or i don't know you you, you can brag about your next project or something like that like
0: <laughs> i i think the thing that was flashing across my mind is i'm just so excited to see what the next generation of editors and filmmakers is going to bring to the craft i mean obviously the tools of storytelling are at everybody's fingertips now in mm-hmm. a way that i think is exciting and deceptive because I think everybody just thinks that they're a filmmaker editor too. And I think that, um, sort of, it's like, yes, and no, um, uh, a little bit of both, but I can't wait to see as this generation steps into their careers, how they're going to bring such a fresh point of view, um, and rhythm to filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just find that to be, you know, refreshing and, and awesome.
1: Definitely. That was supposed to be like,
0: here's a talking point. Now you guys talk about this.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I concur. seems like a great place to end. (laughs) Um, Where can people follow your guys' work? Well, I'm trying to get off of social media. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I do have an Instagram, which is at DS Garber. But but mostly I'm I'm trying to not do that. So I I guess my website is my name, www.danielgarber.com.
0: I am I am also <laughs> trying to get off of social media. I'm actually doing this thing recently, which has been like very good for my mental health, which is like, especially on weekends, just putting my phone down mm-hmm. altogether, um, yeah. which is really nice. But um I occasionally do post on Twitter at just my name at Sarah Dina Smith. And I do have an Instagram under the same thing. Um but um yeah, I don't know. Keep a lookout for the drop, which is having its festival premiere at Tribeca. We're it's an indie film, so we're you know going to be looking for a distributor. It probably won't be out to audiences for some time, um, because then you know mm-hmm. whoever buys it will put it into their distribution cycle. So it might not be available to audiences even for maybe another six months to a year, if if not more. Yeah. Um, but keep a lookout for that. And then uh, my previous movies, Birds of Paradise, is available on Amazon Prime. Buster's Mel Hart, um, starring Rami Malek, is on Netflix. And The Midnight Swim was just given, That's my first micro-budget feature, was just given this sexy re-release by Ooh. Yellow Veil and Vinegar Syndrome. They just released this like really killer Blu-ray um, with all kinds of like special features. And then it's also streaming on a bunch of different platforms, including Shudder, for those of oh, you good. who like genre films.
1: Sarah, do you, do you yeah. have another film uh, in, in the progress or not?
0: Um I do well I have I'm writing a bunch of stuff right now. So I'm in I'm in development mode and writing mode and um I just came from pitching a new TV series um to record this podcast with you guys. So hopefully um something will, you know, move from development into pre-pro soon, but in the meantime I'm just planting a lot of seeds and tending to my seedlings and hoping yeah. one of them grows.
1: I'll put the good vibes out there for you. Thank you. <laughs> <It's> perfect, guys. <laughs> Thank you, thank you for joining the podcast. Yeah,
3: thank you so much for joining us.
0: So you guys are awesome. So nice talking to you.
1: And that's today's episode. I don't know if you've noticed but but both of them had stressed how important the lack of ego in the other person is. Like both uh, Daniel appreciated lack of ego when in, in the creative in the creative process uh, in Sarah. Uh, as, you know, Sarah did in in Daniel. So I think this approach where you just care about the story and nothing is personal, that the feedback is always like aimed to not to get your idea across, but to get the story better, to get the film better for the audience eventually. I think this approach is something that, you know, we, we constantly repeat because it's so, so important uh, that is just something you have to acquire to be a professional in this space. Um, yeah. And, you know, I've learned from this conversation a lot. I, I, I hope you did it as well. And till the next time, in the next episode, we're we going to uh, be back together. Uh, so, yeah, I, I will not spoil what's coming next. Uh, yeah. Till the next time. Have a good one. Thank you for listening. Bye. Are you still listening? We want to talk a little bit about Editing Chef.
3: You know, Peter, since I'm a self-taught editor, I have these habits that I created that are a little bit too long-winded, or they were a little bit too long-winded, in the sense of, like, I would be clicking my mouse too much to get to a certain thing or make a certain kind of cut. Um, But honestly, since I signed up for the Editing Chef, like, a lot of that stuff has gone away, and I've uh, maximized the uh, efficiency of of my editing workflow, where now I have created like shortcuts and utilize keyboard shortcuts that I hadn't used before. Um, And even a lot of the stuff that I would do to prepare for a project that I've learned through the course has greatly impacted the way that I work.
1: It's not only about technical aspects, about tips and tricks in It's also about things like mindset, like the approach Mm -hmm. to organizing assets and, you know, other things, basically like the workflow in editing chef is the word that covers everything from the moment you get the footage to the moment you deliver a finished project mm-hmm. to the client so even client feedback and things like that because all of these things actually have their effect on our efficiency and our approach to editing and yeah. that's that's you know that's when when i've been putting together lessons for editing chef that's what i had in mind I was not thinking about what to do on your timeline to make you edit faster. So I was not thinking along the lines of like, you know, 10 tips to edit faster. I was thinking along the lines of what yeah. is the process from the start to begin to, to till the end and mm-hmm. how and where are the places? What are the aspects you need to think about to be efficient in the long run? And I think that's the foundation. That's, that's the right. foundation of editing Chef. So yeah, if you want to be part of it, we would love to have you there.
3: Just go to cuttothepoint.com forward slash EC or there is a link in the description.
1: Thank you for taking time out of your busy day.
3: If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, or subscribe on whatever platform you've listened to this on.
1: Your reviews help other editors to
3: discover the show and tell your friends. Also, if you have any questions or comments, leave us a message at SpeakPipe. There's a link in the description or email us at podcast at cuttothepoint.com.